Funding the Adventurous Life. This is your host, Chad Andrews, and today we're doing a QA post. Oh, I didn't even ask you. Hi, how are you? I'm sorry. It was very rude of me. I just started talking rudely without checking in on how you're doing. How are you doing? You doing pretty good? Good. Anyway, this is a QA post, and this is QA vol your questions answered volume three. So you're probably wondering where are the first two volumes? Well, they're on the website. They're old written posts that I wrote sometime in the last year. They are written. You'll have to go back and read them. And as a side note, I will be putting in the show notes relevant written content from this website as I kind of work through these questions. So if you want more details, and obviously we really need those written details for some of these questions. Podcasts are great in many ways, but really uh, some things you just got to sit down with, with um, you know, writing and kind of figure this out. And on another note, I, I started this podcast because I kept getting emails over the last three years like, oh man, I really like this stuff, but can you do this as a podcast? I just, I just can't read. My attention span has been reduced to seven seconds. And, that, and, and by the way, what is the deal with people sharing stories they haven't read? They just see the headline and it hits their attention span and, and agrees with their values. And they're just like, here, read this, everyone. I'm like, you didn't even read it. I know you didn't read it. So anyway. Um, yeah, check the show notes for all these previous Q&A posts, as well as the other posts that help elucidate some of these points. Okay, let's get into the first question. Okay, this one's pretty good. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did ask for anything, so I guess some of these are going to be a little off topic, but why not? What is my favorite coffee? My favorite coffee is without a doubt, espresso. No milk, no sugar, no cream, no lattes, no no pumpkin spice, just straight up boiled down essence coffee. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I can't go into like a flying J and pump that thing anymore. You know, I don't know. The the drip coffees, I think it's it's not ugh. yeah, it's because they're watered down, they don't taste good, and they're so jacked full of caffeine that it makes me feel like a crazy person. Espresso, even though it's down to the essence, the, the, the flavor is very rich, but the caffeine content's not crazy. It's kind of my sweet spot. And it's funny, we were just on a road trip and I was craving a coffee. So I asked my wife to Google coffee and she starts reading off the results. And I'm like, this is not going to work. I think you need to Google espresso. We need to refine this search a little bit more for my sensibilities. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Okay, let's get in the real meat. So, how do you spend retirement money early? This is a great question that comes up quite a lot because folks have been rightfully taught over the years to try and divert some of their income into retirement accounts. So those are your 401ks, your IRAs. If you're in the public sector, perhaps 457, 403b. Hopefully those ring a bell to some degree. But as many folks have, have worked out, a lot of those accounts have penalties if you withdraw that money early. And that age that is defined as early is usually anything before 59 and a half. Why is 59 and a half? I have no idea. Why half? Why not 60? Why not 59? Uh, I don't know. You'll have to take that up with your senator. But for some reason, 59 and a half has become this magic age by which 
It's okay to be retired if you're above that and withdraw that money penalty-free. However, if you withdraw early at any other age, you're looking at some pretty uh, pretty steep penalties. So we don't want to do that. However, there is a way to work around this, and it is called the Roth Conversion Ladder. And so I've got a post right here in your show notes. Go check that out. It is called the Bold and Beautiful Roth Conversion because it is both bold and beautiful. Easy, breezy, beautiful, just like the 90s. What is that? Victoria's Secret? So the point of this whole thing is that we can actually move funds from our traditional 401ks into IRAs. And I don't want to belabor how we can do this too much right here. I mean, I could fill up an entire podcast just on the Roth conversion, but I want to point you guys over to this post. But essentially the key here is that we need to be in a low income tax environment. And I've got the tax brackets pulled up here. And I know this is probably something you have posted up next to your motivational quotes in your training space or hung above your bed, the 2021 tax brackets. But in case you don't, um, I'm looking right here. Let's just say you and your significant other are married filing jointly and you're in the 22% tax bracket. So that would actually be uh, an income greater than 81,000 roughly and less than roughly 172,000. And we have to remember this is also marginal dollars. It doesn't mean that every dollar is taxed at 22%. Um, we could go off in left field with this real quick. So I want to keep that kind of offline. But let's just say you're in the 22% tax bracket. If you do a Roth conversion, if you move funds from a traditional 401k or IRA into a Roth IRA, that is a taxable event. So what you don't want to do is do this while you're working. Let's just say you think you're going to retire in three to five years, and you're like, I need to start getting some money in these Roth accounts so I can spend it early. What you do not want to do is do that while you're working in a high-tax environment because that is all taxable income, and you will get a big fat tax bill on that. You don't want to take all $400,000 you've saved in your retirement accounts and move it all over at once because you will get a huge tax bill on that. So the idea here is that you move little by little each year. And then once those funds have seasoned in a Roth IRA for five years, seasoned like a, a Spanish Iberico ham in a cellar, a musty cellar, seasoning like a fine wine, then you can spend those funds penalty-free and tax-free. So you're by doing this, you're both avoiding taxes and you're avoiding the penalties of early withdrawal, and you can spend that money early. Now, the key here is that you have to bridge this five-year gap from the time you move this money into a Roth IRA until the time you spend it. So how do you do that? Well, there's a few ways. You could save five years worth of cash to cover your living expenses, but that's a lot of cash. The way we chose to do it, fortunately, we were able to max out our 401ks and IRAs while we were working and have money left over. We were able to you know, pay our bills, have fun, get a beer, whatever, go to dinner, and then we could still have some more money left over for investing. We made pretty good salaries. Um, it just is what it is. I would just be honest with you. And so we did some after-tax investing in a brokerage account, and I think that's really the best way. If, you, if you've got the margin for it, you can be investing with your post-tax dollars that have already been taxed, they've already been taken, money's been taken out, been given it to you, and instead of going and blowing it all in lollipops, you decide to invest, which is what we did. Um, and so we invest in our brokerage account and all that 
is pretty much tax-free. So basically, if I were to sell a bunch of shares out of there, the cost basis, the, 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 the amount I put into it cannot be taxed because I was already taxed on it. So I took those post-tax, post-tax dollars and I bought a mutual fund. Fantastic. Well, if that mutual fund grows in value, the capital gains on that can be taxed. But the capital gains rates are so high that you, you could basically sell off tons of money and, uh, and not have to worry about. You can pretty much have 0% taxable gains all the way up to $81,050. So you're in good shape there. So you can, if you've saved at least in five years of living expenses in a brokerage account, um, then you're in good shape. So you can sit here and wait on these Roth conversions to season, and then you can start spending that old 401k money at age like 32, if you're retired at 32. Um, we kind of call it quits in our mid-30s, at least for now. I don't call myself retired, but I'm not working in a traditional way. We've actually saved enough brokerage account. We kind of half of our net worth was saved in a brokerage account. So I'm actually pretty sure we'd be able to just bridge that gap all the way to 59 and a half without spending retirement funds. But we're doing Roth conversions anyway. And so you may wonder, well, why, why do that if you can just wait and spend it at 59 and a half? Uh, because I just don't trust that the tax code's not going to change. And if anything, the tax code will change in a way that requires us to pay more taxes. And so I'm going to go ahead and start moving that money over little by little each year so that by the time, say, um, retirement contributions are taxed in a way we don't foresee right now, I'll already have that money into a Roth account, which is theoretically money you already t- were taxed on. So it can't be taxed again. Now, could that change? You know, sure, I guess. But at least right now, we are hedging on getting that money out of a traditional IRA into a Roth IRA, little by little. Um, And we're only doing about, uh, it's going to vary, you know, again, go look at the post. I went into a lot of detail on this. So you each year you do have what's known as the um, standard deduction. So this is, we all get this. The standard deduction for taxpayers who are married and filing jointly is $25,100 in 2021. So no matter what you make in taxable income, that's going to be lobbed off the top automatically. That's just Uncle Sam throwing you a $25,000 bone. So if we were to convert $25,100 as a Roth conversion, we would owe zero taxes on that because our taxable income would be $25,100 minus $25,100 is zero. So that's pretty awesome. But if you go and convert $100,000, then you're going to owe, you know, you're going to have, you're going to be taxed on about $75,000. So that's why I'm saying you don't want to go and convert your entire retirement account, which could have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in one year, because you're going to be on the hook for those taxes. All of that is taxable income. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. So a final note on this before I move on, I had a, a reader today reach out to me who wanted to uh, retire along with his wife in about five years or so. Um, their dilemma is that they had had, reti- they had saved entirely into their retirement account, so like a 401k, but did not have much in the way of uh, previous Roth contributions from a Roth IRA or brokerage or other cash contributions to bridge that five-year gap. And so they're considering maybe doing Roth conversions now, even though they're in a higher tax bracket. And so you kind of have to weigh the income um, taxes on that and, and just kind of consider, okay, if I do this now at say a 32% tax bracket, how much is that going to cost me? 
versus can I just start really squirreling away five years worth of living expenses in some other way? Or do I just maybe not retire early? Maybe I just go part-time or work a new job I like that doesn't pay nearly as much, but at least helps me cover my life expenses to kind of ease into early retirement. Because I got to say, I don't think early retirement is for everybody. I mean, a lot of people get bored pretty quick. So I think maybe the the way to do it is to kind of ease in with a, uh, you know, part-time job or a job that, you know, I don't know, whatever you enjoy that doesn't pay well, but at least helps you cover the bills. So, okay, let's move on to this next question. This is a good one. This is about how much we can spend of our retirement money per year, especially over an extended retirement horizon. Um, it goes more along the lines of the 4% rule, which I'll get into and define here in just a second for those that are new. Um, if that is applied to a 30-year window, as it was, Trinity study, how do you extend it for someone like you who is hoping to be retired for many more years? Okay, so there's a lot there. The Trinity study is a study, I believe, from the 90s, don't quote me on this, that basically said early, not early retirees, just any kind of retirees with a 30-year horizon for the rest of their life, kind of morbid to think, but you're only going to be alive 30 more years. How much money can you spend of your portfolio? Because you had to have some idea of like, you can't just go blow it on year one. Um, how much of this can I actually spend? And that study deemed that 4% was like the healthy realm. So on any given year, and there's a lot of nuance here. I don't want to go into, I've, I've kind of studied the Trinity study a lot. I've looked into a lot of the folks who talk about it um, and written about it extensively. And basically the, the long and short kind of rule of thumb is that over a 30 year retirement, you could spend about 4% yearly of your net worth. And so how does that work out in real terms? Well, let's just say you have a million dollar portfolio, right? And it's invested and it's generating returns. It's not cash, but something that's invested. If you do 4% of 1 million, you get 40,000. And so if your life costs 40,000 and you saved a million, you just hit the 4% rule. That's that's where another way of looking at is 25 times your annual spending. That would be another way of saying 4% of your net worth. So if your life costs 40 grand, you need at least 1 million to last you 30 years. But folks have rightly pointed out that, okay, if you retire in your 40s, you're probably going to live more than 30 more years. Let's just be hopeful here. I mean, I, I've, I've always run with the assumption that I'm going to live into my 90s because I have a family history of kind of longevity there. I don't know what it is. I don't feel like I've done everything to live a long life, but let's just assume I will. And so if I quit my job in my 30s, I've got to cover 60 years potentially. So I guess the first way to answer this is, well, do you really think you're going to be retired for 60 years? And my gut instinct is to say, absolutely not. I mean, there's no way I'm going to go from here on out and never make another dime. It's just ridiculous. So does the 4% rule really extend out beyond 30 years? Well, yeah, the answer is it actually does surprisingly hold up quite well. Um, and there's a little bit of nuance there. So the post I'll use to help illustrate this question is, what is it called here? Sorry. The long approach to being scared of investing. That'll be in the show notes as a post from this past April. Um, so if you scroll on down in this post, I've got this, I've got this withdrawal rates plotted against retirement length in years. And so these are all these um, cohorts of different 
timings of when folks retired and what the market did, looking at an 80-20 U.S. stock to bond portfolio. And so you see this asymptotic relationship that beyond 30 years, it actually levels out at 4% being a pretty good uh, rule of thumb. But the truth is, I, I, you know, you probably want to save more. What we're seeing here, and this is from PortfolioCharts.com, I think, is that you want to go with this perpetual withdrawal rate. The perpetual withdrawal rate, PWR, not only keeps the portfolio from being depleted, but theoretically provides a level of spending that preserves the initial inflation-adjusted principle. So if you retire with a million dollars and you really want to stay high and dry here, what these studies are showing us is that a rule of thumb instead of 4% is probably to go with 3.5%, basically. So that would mean you'd need to save, oh boy, I better pause and do some math. Okay, I'm back with some math. So if you wanted to do a 3.5% withdrawal rate on $40,000, you would need to save $1,142,857.14. The 14 cents is the most important part, by the way. No. So basically you would need another, you know, $100,500, which sounds crazy. I know. But first of all, do you want to run out of money? No, you probably don't. But also, once you have this compound snowball rolling, and by the way, maybe I need to do a really basic podcast on just compound growth. I mean, I saw a study the other day that two-thirds of Americans don't understand compound interest. That's scary stuff, guys. If you don't understand how interest either hurts you with debt or helps you with investing, that's a huge disadvantage. Um, So that's serious stuff. But what I'm trying to say here is once you've got a million dollars saved, the forces of the market start generating a lot more money than you would imagine. So adding another $100,000 to it sounds crazy if you're starting from zero. Like the idea of saving $100,000 if you have nothing sounds insane. But once you have a million dollars invested, you can make $100,000 pretty quick. I mean, with assuming the market continues to grow, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can also lose $100,000 very quickly too. I have to point that out. So it's not so crazy I think what you want to do is aim for a safe withdrawal rate of 3.5% or less. What have we done? We've got about 3%. That's what we aim for. Uh, We may have fallen victim to the whole one more year syndrome, things like that. It's debatable, but man, especially for my wife, having a lot more savings than we need really helps us sleep at night. We don't have to worry. Are we over kind of withdrawing on our account? And we can live a little larger when times are good, you know, like, in this past year or so, and the market's been crushing it. So we don't feel bad if we're spending a little bit more money and enjoying life because we've oversaved. Whereas, you know, if the market takes a dump and drops 20% next year, um, which it, you know, it dropped 30% in 2020 for a little while before boring back. But if it drops 20%, hey, we still got margin. We're still within 3.5, 4%. Man, yeah. So that's, that's the short answer. If, if you want to have a longer retirement horizon, just aim for 3.5%. I think that's a good safe number. If you want to be even more conservative, drop it down to 3%. And so how do you do that math? Well, take whatever your yearly spending is, what you expect it to be. Fudge that, by the way, because you never know. We've actually are spending more than I thought we would, but we're okay with that. And then divide that by, if it's 3.5, that would be 0.035 or 0.03 for 3%, or 0.04. Fairly simple math, but I don't know. Math is not everybody's subject. So, But 
roughly the 4% rule of thumb, just multiply your yearly spending by 25. That's what gets you to financial independence. Okay, next. Okay, yeah, so this is a funny one too. I got this one recently. We had a friend over for dinner and the first thing he asked was, you know, so uh, is this whole financial thing working? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it better work. We've only been quit, we quit our jobs less than two years ago. Or was it? Yeah, yeah, less than two years ago. Yeah, so like I said in the in the last question, I mean, to be financially independent, you have to have at least 25 times your yearly spending. And so if it wasn't working well for us at this point, man, we would have uh, somehow missed the boat. So no, things are doing quite well. Honestly, way better than expected. The markets have been unbelievably good, if that makes you feel good. I don't know. I, a lot of people get nervous when the market's going down. I get nervous when it's roaring ahead at crazy rates. I like to see a little, you know, forest fires here and there, kind of clearing out the undergrowth. I know that sounds bad, but that's what healthy markets do. They kind of clean out the crap. And if we we kind of inter- insert ourselves too much and try and control things, that's not healthy for markets. Just like we shouldn't be in there um, leaving the forest alone. You know, we we get, we have to have some sort of. Inter- I don't know where I'm going with this analogy, but basically, we've we've been exceptionally happy. The markets have returned a lot more money than we need to live off of. We're in way better shape financially than when we quit our jobs and we haven't made six-figure incomes or anything like that in almost two years. And yeah, our investments are paying for more than we need to live off of and we've got a lot of margin um, for risk tolerance. So we are happy with that. So yes, it is working. Okay, this is also an extremely uh, common question. How do you cover health insurance? So this is a big hang-up for folks considering uh, early retirement on the horizon, or even just quitting their jobs to go, you know, do something else in the gig economy to kind of go their own way is how do I fund health insurance? It seems so crazy expensive. Well, uh, the answer is that we take advantage of the subsidies provided by the Affordable Care Act. And so I've already talked a lot. I already have one podcast on this and a few recent posts. So I'm going to put those in the show notes. I'm not going to belabor this, but the beauty of being in a low income tax environment or just a low income environment is that you benefit from these subsidies so we don't have to pay full sticker price. So I wrote a post recently about how we have negative health care costs, and that's the truth. Our premiums are about 9 bucks a month for a silver plan here in Utah. We get the equivalent of about $40 a month in gift cards because we uh, participate in these health incentives like walking. We just walk a lot, and we track that on our phone. So we get gift cards rewarding us for that behavior. So it actually comes out that we're being paid like $35 a month to have health insurance. So uh, it's it's a non-issue right now. So don't worry about that. Be excited. However, if your income is quite high, if you want to live a more you know lavish life or whatever, um, and you expect to be over the fiscal cliff, not the fiscal cliff, sorry, the uh, the subsidy cliff, which is, oh man, we're getting in the weeds here, but that would be 400% of the federal poverty level. So for two people, it's like, I don't know, 60 something, high 60,000. If you're over that, you would be, you would not get subsidized healthcare. And that's the old model. So there's a current new law that went in place this year that eliminated that, that cliff. However, that's set to expire in 2022, unless it gets extended. So there would be some consideration for them, you know, uh, the folks that want to retire on a higher um, income, perhaps. Although I think most of us are going to be quite satisfied with the subsidies, no matter what happens with those changes in 2022. But I'll tell you what, 
I've got a hunch they're going to extend those because you know what? It's really hard to give somebody something and then take it away. So right now I'm very happy on healthcare. Would I love the European, you know, universal healthcare? Sure. But you know what? Again, on taxes, if you want that, you got to pay a lot more taxes and Americans don't like paying taxes. So I don't think we're gonna have universal healthcare anytime soon, unfortunately. Okay, next. Okay, this one's pretty easy. Uh, what mutual funds, index funds, ETFs would you recommend investing in for the long term? Uh, our our favorite. I've I've written this a thousand times on the web. Maybe not a thousand. That's ridiculous. But I've I've mentioned this many times on the website. Our favorite. Oh, I'm burping. Is a Vanguard index fund called VT Sachs. V-T-S-A-X. It's the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. Um, basically, you know, this is not advice. Again, guys, I, I should I should have mentioned that right up front. I'm not a financial advisor. I don't have any degrees in this stuff. I'm just a guy who, you know, you can read. I think you'll find a lot of this stuff to be vouched for across the internet. Um, a lot of us per- personal finance kind of bloggers or whatever you want to call us. There's a lot of commonalities, so I'm not telling anything crazy. I'm not selling anything here. The Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund is a collection of 3,000 companies. And this is a stock fund, by the way. This is stocks. And so, you know, I really, if I were, if, if basically as a young person, aggressive about saving money and okay with a little risk, I, I go pretty high on stocks, like 90, 95%. Don't worry about bonds so much unless you're kind of in wealth preservation mode. But I'm assuming most of you out there are trying to build wealth. You're not worried about preserving it at this point in your life. So, Personally, I I went, my wife and I went 95% stocks and we were investing almost entirely in this one index fund. And so you'd be like, what? You're like putting all your money into one index fund? Like what about diversification and all that? Well, you're you're getting it. I mean, we have 3,000 whatever many companies that are in this index fund. They're cap weighted based on their market cap. And they're also global companies, right? So they're competing and acting globally. Think Apple. Think these companies that have global supply chains, which is a little bit concerning actually now. The pandemic, global supply chains have been impacted to some degree. But by and large, these are global organizations. So even though this is a U.S. stock index fund, a lot of these companies operate and have products and offices and all this stuff all over the world. So we're quite happy with that. And what we're doing with this one index fund is this just tracking the stock market as a whole. We're not trying to beat the market. We're not trying to do any better. We certainly don't want to do any worse. We're just trying, we're just buying the economy, right? So we buy VTSAX. That is basically, if you go on your stock ticker app or whatever you have on your phone and just put in the S&P 500, that's basically what we're approximating. And so that's the performance we get. We're not moving in and out of other funds. We primarily bought VTSAX. Um, and I think if you go with that one in some sort of broad-based broad base bond, um, you know, a very small percentage of your, maybe up to 20, I mean, for someone very conservative, maybe 50% bonds, I mean, that's getting quite conservative. Um, again, I don't want to dig into the bonds too much because I think most people are more interested in the stock funds. And so, and, you know, and some people choose to do about 20% international, maybe a Vanguard total international, and that's fine too. Um you have to be a little weary on international accounting. Uh, there's some there's some companies out of some developed nations that you, it makes you wonder kind of their accounting standards. And um, yeah, so we don't have a whole lot in the realm of uh, 
international funds. We changed that a little bit. Maybe I should do an update post, but I'll, I'll, I'll put a link here for our investing strategy and what we've done over the years, especially as it pertains to how we built wealth. And we have changed that slightly, very, very slightly, not in a meaningful way, but very slightly to help with the wealth preservation. Basically, we just added some more bonds. We're like 80-20 now instead of 95-5. Um, but that's a li- that's just to soften the volatility. And so I'm glad he mentioned long-term. I want to pause on that for a minute. And I really do want to reiterate that this is something long-term. We don't buy VT Sachs and sell it six months later and move in and out of the market with the times or whatever. We buy that thing and we set up a monthly contribution when we were working. We don't now, but every month we bought VT Sachs at the beginning of the month um, in our brokerage account. And then in our 401ks, I just looked for something that was like an S&P 500. I didn't have access to VT Sachs in my 401k. So look for something broad-based, kind of approximates like total stock market, something like that. Um, you know, do the best you can with a 401k, but you're basically trying to pump something into this all the time. It doesn't matter what's going on in the news or what, you know, Uncle Billy said when he was hanging out by his Camaro, talking about something he heard on the news. It doesn't matter. You're buying the economy and the economy goes up and down. You got to be okay with that and you got to chill on that and you got to not lose it and sell or buy based on hype. Like hype is stupid. Don't get caught up in hype. Just invest that's called dollar cost averaging. You just do it all the time in all market environments. That's what you do. Um, what else do I want to say? Oh, yes. So VT Sachs, that requires a minimum investment of $3,000. Um, I really like it, but you got to have 3000 bucks. So if you don't have $3,000, you can start with VTI. VTI. That's the exact same index fund. It's just an ETF. The only difference is, to my knowledge, and I could be wrong on this now, it could have changed. VTI um, does not allow automatic contributions. And so I really like VT Sachs because I don't have to think about when I'm investing. I don't have to set reminders. I just set it up in Vanguard and it just does it automatically. And that's so beautiful because I think a lot of people, if they don't do something automatically, they just lose the luster. It was like a good idea on Tuesday, but by Friday they've forgotten about it. You know? So set up something you can't screw with. And... So we buy VT Sachs. But, you know, if you got a different one, let me know. Okay, next. Okay, this is a good one. This is like not on the financial track, but so we spent five months on the road, my wife and I. And this reader wants to know about community on the road. I got to say, that was a struggle for us, to be quite honest with you. I really don't know how it can't be a struggle. Um, I've heard talk of people saying, oh, you know, you travel long enough, you see people on kind of the road trip circuit, you meet back up. And that's great. But I feel like real community is having people you mesh with on a regular basis. And when I see people in the vans and the campers, it's kind of a reclusive life. You know, you may be you and your partner, but it ends up being a lot of you and your partner or just you. I mean, trust me, we were in a 90 square foot camper I mean, you see a lot of your other significant other. I mean, you're just like face-to-face, good and bad. Especially if it's like a rainy day. It's just yours like you and the dog and you. I, you know? So, yeah, there were moments where I was out climbing and being social and kind of scratching the social itch. But I felt alone in a way I hadn't felt in years. And this could have been because of the pandemic. I mean, I think we all felt alone. This was 2020, right? So, I mean... I mean, this was the year of alone for loneliness. (laughs) 
you know, and I don't want to belabor this. I, I realize a lot of people went through hell and back in 2020. And, and so my little poor misgivings about not having friends on the road are, are pretty trivial, but it's true. And I don't think it's entirely the pandemic. I've talked to a lot of folks like this. Um, when you're always on the move, and even if you want to stay in somewhere for two, three, even four months or whatever, and, and really get to know a place, it's still only four months. And I've moved a lot, and I don't feel like I've ever really had a sense of community until I've at least spent a year somewhere and really started to kind of build some shallow roots. And yeah, you can have friends, but will you have a sense of community? I don't think we did personally. So that's a big reason why uh, we we ended that. And so, yeah, it's just something to consider. I think maybe others would agree, uh, you know, disagree and 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 talk about how they've maybe made travel buddies and they all travel together. But that seems to be the exception, not the norm, from folks I've talked to. So, yeah, I don't know. I think making community on the road is kind of difficult. Okay, next. That's a good one too. Um, again, not financial, but you know, living the fire life, the climbing life with a partner who doesn't climb. Well, that that's me. I think this person is saying that that's their situation, but it's also my situation. So fire again, for those of you totally tuning in for the first time is this kind of financial independence or retire early movement. And so I think a lot of folks love this idea of retiring early and then you can just climb your face off. Um, but how do you do that with someone who doesn't climb? And my wife does not climb. So uh, the short answer is it's really no different from when we were working when we're at home, right? I mean, she's got her routine at the house or, you know, out doing other things. And then I get partners like I always did years ago that, you know, are not my wife because she's never really climbed. And we we go and have fun and I come home and it's, you know, a good day out. We got our separate time. You know, I did my thing. She did her thing. We get together and we have a glass of wine. We have dinner, high five, and we're having a blast. However, <laughs> when we go traveling, it can be a point of contention. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah, I mean, I want to keep, tra- I, you know, I don't want to leave for a month and not climb. And so the issue becomes, especially if we pull the camper back out, like how do I go climbing take the car to do it and leave her in this pod isolated in the woods or in the desert. And, you know, while she hangs back and tries to keep busy in the camper that's now isolated in the forest somewhere. And the truth is it doesn't work well. I mean, this is another reason why we ended our trip the way we ended it. Um, I mean, I think you can imagine five months of me trying to climb my schedule, which is about three to four days a week. I mean, call it selfish, call it what it is, but that, that, that's what, climbers do. I think there's many people out there would be like, yeah, three to four days a week, man, I do six. So yeah, I was trying to balance that. And, I, and so I went bouldering a lot just to keep the time commitment minimal. I mean, that was mostly 95% of what I did on the road trip was bouldering. Um, so I could be out, you know, door to door from the camper, depending where we were and back in like three hours. And so that was nice. So I was, I was staying fit. I wanted to boulder anyway. Yeah. It kind of kept the arguments to a minimum, but you know, we've struggled with this when we've traveled internationally. I'm like, honey, I'm not going to France and just eating cheese and not climbing. I mean, I've got to climb. Like, this is some of the best limestone on the planet. And she rightfully says, well, you climb all the time at home, so why don't? Why do you need to climb in France? I'm like, honey, you haven't touched that Seyus limestone. My goodness, baby. <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't have any great solutions, man. You just have to compromise. You do. When I go on a climbing trip with my wife, I just don't call it a climbing trip. It's a trip where I climb, but it's not a climbing trip. It's not the same I would do with my friends. 
if it's just me and a buddy out climbing, you know, two on, one off, two on, like that's impossible. The best I can hope for if I'm out with my wife and the best I even try and get is one on, one off. And if I can get that, man, that's huge. And usually what I'll do, let's just say we travel for two weeks. Um, like what we've done when we've we've traveled internationally in the past, we'd go for two weeks and I would make the first week kind of climbing focused, like day on, day off. And then the second week, I'm just like, hey, I'm with you. Like whatever you control the second week, I'm not going to climb at all. We'll go sightseeing, you know, still have rest days the first week to have let her do some things too. But I really try and go that extra mile to, um, you know, accommodate. And it never seems like enough, I promise you. Um, She's going to be mad at me. I'm going to be mad at her. And I'm sure you felt that same thing. And maybe I'll get her on here to talk to this one day. Because it's it's a real thing, man. And I've got friends right now who are dealing with this. They've either got significant others who don't climb or only climb in a way that's not crazy obsessive like us. And it's it's a tough thing. I don't have any great answers. I just think just like in life, you got to compromise. And I'll add one important point on this. I mean... My wife is my best friend in the world, and climbing is very important to me. Obviously, it's a passion I have, but we have to be careful not to let this thing that represents a time in our life replace what is supposed to be a lifelong relationship. So just be very mindful of that, you know, to not let this pursuit, which can often be selfish, replace the relationships that are very important in our lives. Okay, let's move on. Okay, so what was it like to transition out of work life? Yeah, I mean, obviously it was abrupt. I, I quit in February of 2020. I went the next day. This was pretty awesome. I hadn't really planned it this way, but it worked out. The next day we flew to Sicily, and that was just so glorious. I mean, it was two weeks of just pure bliss for me. I mean, getting back to the climbing and not climbing. I was there with my wife, so again, it was a trip where I'd climbed, but it wasn't a climbing trip. Um, the first week we were in San Vito Lo Capo, Copa, I can't remember, um, on the sea, just beautiful limestone. It was the winter. Nobody was there. It was just amazing climbing, amazing weather, zero crowds, almost to a fault. Like everything was closed down. It was hard to find a restaurant or anything, but just good living in every way otherwise. And it was so amazing to come back from that trip and not be stressed about like Monday work, you know, and just come back and be jet lagged. Just be like, who gives a shit? Like I'm just sleeping in. Oh man, like I'm it almost brings a tear to my eye, like how happy I was in those early days. And then to come back and like I had a few friends who had weekday flexibility and I was just like, dude, I'm free. Let's go climbing on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. I don't care, whatever. Like I was like that first month, I can't explain to you how happy I was. And it just felt like my life's greatest work at that point. Like I'd made it. But the reality is you settle. And then, unfortunately, three weeks after I got back, the lockdowns began. And so it went from just pure glory to being stuck at home with everyone else. So for a long time, I just trained and climbed. And then we resolved to move, which we were going to do anyway. But we kind of decided to pull the trigger sort of suddenly because the real estate market was kind of surging back. And um, we thought we had an opportunity to get out. Otherwise, we we kind of expected to have stayed another year and waited out the pandemic. but. So we got on the road. And so honestly, and I've written about this and talked about this, it was too much at once. Like I said, that first month was glorious. I, I kind of wish I'd have just stayed put for another year and just kind of eased into this life before maybe selling my home 
and going on the road and just so many changes in one year. Um, and then having to move to a new place and a very different place, right? So now I live in St. George, Utah, which could not be more difficult, not, not, not difficult, more different than Denver. And it's amazing in so many ways, but it's also so, I mean, for anyone who's traveled to both those places, I mean, you know how culturally different they are. And so there's a little bit of adjustment there. And so there was a lot, I think we should have maybe taken it easy on. So I think looking back, the transition is hard to tease out because of the pandemic. I mean, there was so much pandemic related stress and my car got wrecked. I've got a post on that. I mean, there's just a lot going on there in those early months of the pandemic that kind of makes it hard to say what it would have been like. But I feel like I found a groove back in the spring. I was starting to meet some people here locally. I was climbing and climbing well, and I was really enjoying being here. I mean, I was climbing on rock that I used to vacation for, so it just felt like a vacation again. I had a good kind of work and play balance between working on this project, um, getting outside a lot, getting getting in a lot of climbing and just enjoying life. The weather was great. Summer was another kind of doldrum there for a while. Even though we traveled a lot, the it was just so hot down here. When I was in town, it was just kind of hard to be in a great mood being stuck inside. And so that kind of brings us up to this point. I mean, so I kind of still feel like I don't have a pure test. I mean, the, there's so much pandemic overprint on the whole experience that it's hard to tease out what it would have been like. I guess my recommendation for anyone expecting to do something like this is I, I'd maybe go part-time, honestly. I think my wife has especially struggled with going from full-time work to nothing and all of a sudden kind of having this existential crisis, which is maybe, you know, as part of like being in the meritocracy, they say, you know, this merit, merit-based system of, you know, for the, those of us that have gone the college track and the, and the professional degrees and the professional jobs, you do get this beat down into your brain that you have to be always achieving and always productive. And so if you're anything like me, that you struggle to not be productive. And so going from something to nothing can be kind of hard. And thankfully I'd started this platform a year and a half before I quit. So I could just hit the ground running with this, but it was a little different for my wife who was kind of starting to build some of her own creative kind of interest-based activities and, and kind of work. And so there's a little bit more of a, a rough transition there. And so I think for those of you who are considering this, I'd really, really consider strongly some sort of side hustle or passion or hobby on the side that you're doing in your working years that you can transition into. Or in lieu of that, maybe just look for part-time work or volunteer opportunities that really excite you and get you out and social. I think another issue with this lifestyle is it's really easy to just stay at home and talk to nobody. Um, and just, especially if you're married, like we are, you know, like, ah, oh, you got your, you got your buddy here so we can just hang out. But, um, I, I don't think that brings happiness long-term. I think you got to be out meeting people again, getting back to community, getting engaged with folks. And, um, I think that's very important. So I would, you know, the long and short of it here, I would, I'd maybe consider a, a part-time gig or, uh, in lieu of that, if you're ready, just go out the full early retirement. Just don't change too much too soon. Okay. Ooh, this is hot and heavy. Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase here. Basically, what do you think are the impacts of climate change on long-term markets for investing, et cetera? I think this person is pretty convinced that climate change is real. I'll throw my hat in that ring as well. I do as well. Um, and that it will affect 
you know, long-term, basically, you know, the whole premise of financial independence is that we're expecting this kind of past market behavior to carry into the future, which is a big, a big question mark. We obviously don't know. We've had this sort of expectation of returns, say eight to 10% per year in a broad-based index fund. We have to assume that extends into the future and we have to, right? What else, why else wouldn't we? Well, she's thinking through this like, well, we didn't deal with climate change in the past and we might later. And she's right. We might deal with climate change. Here's my hopeful kind of take on this. I'll move my mic. It might be loud. My neck hurts. My take on this is that companies evolve based on the needs in the economy. And so as climate change starts to happen, I mean, I can just imagine all these companies that may exist and all these services that'll exist. Take, for instance, where I live in the desert. A lot of folks, me included, are concerned about water in the West. I don't think they're going to let these places turn into ghost towns. I mean, I can imagine, again, via taxation, there might be huge pipelines, moving water, all these things that will need people to work on them. And so I imagine that new companies will prop up um, or, you know, dealing with rising sea level, just all these new technologies that will come up. I'm, I'm ultimately a hopeful. I'm an optimist. And I do believe in human innovation. And so I think there's technologies we don't yet understand that will come around in the coming years and decades to fight climate change or help us adapt to it. And companies will come around. And they will become profitable based on the work they do to help us fight or adapt to climate change. And they will perhaps replace other companies, perhaps even, um, you know, fossil fuel companies or something like this, which I've talked about recently, may shift into just being energy companies and and dealing with solar energy or wind energy and, and less on fossil fuels. And so I just believe strongly in the ability of the economy to morph to the changing times because if the economy fails and society has failed. And if society fails, then your net worth means nothing anyway, because it's like Mad Max and we'll be out shooting each other or like Waterworld or something. So I just believe that you should, well, you should do whatever you want, but I'm going to keep investing in the economy as a whole. And I am looking forward to seeing how brilliant minds are able to innovate and deal with the cards we're dealt. I hope we can hedge it to some degree, but I think brilliant minds will help us innovate and adapt to the changing times. And we'll see that in markets. Okay. Okay, this one's funny. This is, again, what happens when you ask people to ask you anything. Uh, An old friend, so this is a little bit of an inside joke, but he said, can I get a yellow curry number four spicy? So if you're ever in Denver, what you should do is go to the U.S. Thai Cafe, I believe it's called, over on the west side, and they do legit Thai food. I mean, I, you know, I've traveled to Thailand a little bit. I can't officially say it's legit, but it seemed legit to me. And they don't screw around with their spice. And the first time I went there, I was all kind of smug about it. And I was like, hey, you know, I think I can handle Thai spice. And the woman taking my order was like, no, you can't. And she refused to let me order Thai spice. She's like, it's going to be medium for you. And I was like, oh, I'm quite offended by this. And so I tried her medium spice Thai food, curry, whatever I ordered. And it near me, nearly blew my head off, and I was paying for it the entire next day. And so she was very right. I was very wrong. And so if you go to the U.S. Thai Cafe, which you should, and you, you definitely should, go, go mild or, or medium. Medium plus, I don't know, man. It's your funeral. Okay, next. Okay, got one coming in. 
how to figure out how to get to a lower tax bracket and if it's worth it. Okay, this one was a little confusing, so I had to reach back out for a little clarification. Because obviously, I mean, the easiest way to get to a lower tax bracket is to quit your job, um, which is probably not advisable. And so my gut reaction when listening to this question is like, well, why would, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, w- I would want to, I would preferentially try and make more money. I think there's a lot of shame out there about money, which is completely misguided and hurtful for us in the long term. We do not need to be ashamed about making money. Perhaps anything we need to be ashamed about is how we spend it. Um, you know, I, there's this great Morgan Household quote, I believe, it says, people don't want to make a million dollars, they want to spend a million dollars. And I think that's great. And the people who are out there that want to make a million dollars, but not want to spend a million dollars are going to be are going to be able to generate real wealth and generate real freedom. So anyway, my first question was like, well, what's going on here? We, we should be making more money and therefore we'd be in a higher tax bracket. But then following up with this individual, it looks like they're right on the edge and they've been kind of contributing to a 401k, but kind of splitting that off into a Roth IRA, kind of going half and half. Again, this is not advice. I'm just talking. What I would do personally, I would go hard and heavy and maxing out that 401k. We talked to Diana Crabtree Green, uh, episode five, I want to say. I could be wrong. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah, episode five. I'm looking at it right here. She talked about paying yourself first. And so we really want to max out that 401k because we get that tax benefit now. Um, there is some nuance in why we might want some Roth contributions. If we were going to retire early and we don't have brokerage contributions to get us to that five-year seasoning period, like we talked about the individual who wants to retire early um, but does not have a whole lot of brokerage, cash, or other Roth savings, you might want a little bit there. But otherwise, I would be going hard and heavy on the traditional 401k contributions because that's all pre-tax now. You're not paying tax on it when those contributions go in. And all those contributions will lower your tax obligation. Again, if you make $100,000, you contribute $19,500 to your 401k, then your tax obligation is therefore only, uh, what, $80,500, if I'm doing that math right, roughly $80,000. So that's pretty powerful. That might get you down below um, the next tax bracket. The next thing I would look at is if you can get an HSA, that's a health, health savings account, associated with a high deductible healthcare plan. If you can max that out, which I believe is around $3,500 for an individual, somewhere around $7,000 for married filing jointly for two individuals for a family, that also lowers your tax obligation. Those are fantastic uh, accounts for health savings. You do not have to spend them on healthcare in that given year. Uh, And if you wait long enough beyond 59 and a half, you don't have to spend them on healthcare at all. And you can invest those funds. I invest those. I invest in like VT Sachs. It's amazing. I'm putting healthcare funds into what is a de facto really great retirement account. So anyway, the 401k, the HSA, these are all tax deductible or, or um, you know, tax uh, advantage retirement buckets. And so that can bump you down to the next lowest tax bracket. But otherwise, I would be focusing on making as much money as you can. I, again, I don't think there should be any shame in making a bunch of money. If you want to make $2 million next year, more power to you. Just don't go blow it on dumb stuff. Don't go buying Rolexes. Don't go buying crap you don't need. 
I mean, do you, you know, eh, I don't know. I don't want to be judgmental, but you, you know, if you're buying stuff, you don't need. And so that's my answer on that. Make as much money as you can. Don't worry about the taxes so much, but make sure you're also maxing out these tax advantage vehicles to lower your tax obligation in a completely normal, this is not Jeff Bezos tax sheltering kind of stuff. This is just normal everyday tax advantage methods um, that we should be taking advantage of. These are not loopholes. These are just things we all should be doing. Okay. Okay. This one, oh boy. Your guess on when the next recession is coming. Um, guys, I mean, it, it is not advisable to sit around pacing in your living room, chewing on your nails, worrying about when the next recession is coming. Um, it, it's coming. That's all we need to know. Is it next month? Is it next year? Is it 10 years from now? I have no clue. Do I have my personal hunches? Uh, sure. I mean, like I said earlier, I really don't like seeing the market the S&P 500, which is what I watch with some regularity. You shouldn't watch it, by the way. <laughs> I, I know my own psychology. I know I could watch it all day long and not take any action. But if you're one of these people who sees bad news and feels like you need to do something, then do not watch it. Um, I check in on it here and there, you know, throughout the week just to see what's going on. I kind of am a news junkie, to be honest with you. So I like to see what's going on in the world. Um, I like to be informed. But what am, where am I going with this? Oh, right. Because the, the market has been plodding along pretty much since the uh, recession. Kind of, there was a recession, by the way, back in um, the pandemic, right? It was very short-lived, probably one of the most short-lived recessions we've ever had. But it was quick and dirty. The market dropped 30%, which, by the way, the stock market and a recession are not necessarily the same thing. Like a stock market crash and a recession, they're often tied together, kind of like peas in a pod. But you can have a stock market collapse in lieu of recession and vice versa, but generally they tend to go together. But as investors, we're, we're, we're more worried about the stock market. You know, that's where our money's tied up. Of course, we worry about businesses losing people and things like that. Um, you know, I'm not like this heartless spreadsheet robot. You know, I, I do care about the things. Um, I'm just going off on crazy tangents here. Anyway, when do I think the next recession is coming? I don't know. Um, I am quite a bit worried about this debt ceiling discussion. So in the U.S., Janet Yellen, she is the, oh God. Yes, Janet Yellen is the United States Secretary of the Treasury. I had a momentary brain fart. I'm like, tre treasury something, treasury boss, treasury lady. Yeah, and so she's a little worried that if we don't get this debt ceiling thing dealt with, you know, people in Congress have been bickering about this for a few weeks now. And if we don't, we're going to default on our debt. And that could, she believe, uh, trigger a recession, which would be soon. So what does that mean? You need to do nothing. You need to keep investing. Um, again, this is not advice. This is what I would do. I, it didn't matter what was going on when I was in my working career. I just invested every single month. It was, again, automatic. I can't reiterate this enough, guys. Take your brain out of it. Our brains are feeble, emotion-laden emotion-laden, um, yeah, just goo that doesn't do us much good, honestly. Our emotions are, are, are not our best friends. I mean, emotions are great. It's, it's good to, to cry and hug and stuff. But when it comes to investing, you want to be robotic as you possibly can. This is why the, the spreadsheet nerds are, are pretty good at saving money. It's because, eh, you know, they're not as emotionally driven as some of us. And I'm choking on something. I'm sorry. 
Um, so you want to be as robotic as possible and you want to invest every single month and you want to have automatic systems that are doing that for you. And so if a recession comes, who cares? You know why? Because now you're buying VT Sachs or whatever your favorite index fund is on sale. I know it's kind of a cliche thing people always talk about, but it's true. If you're all of a sudden buying it for, you know, April prices, then you're doing pretty good. So it'll come back up. Don't worry. You know, recessions are a normal part of financial markets. I don't think we should view these things as doom and gloom. Certainly, there have been very scary ones in history. The Depression, the Great Recession back in 2008. Um, And those are the big ones, just like we get big forest fires. But a lot of forest fires are just little small things that the, you know, Forest Service come drop a few buckets of lake water on and, uh, you know, cheers and we're, we're good. And that's how a lot of these financial things are. Like in the last couple of weeks, you know, we've been down almost 10%, but does that mean anything? I don't know. You know, like maybe two years from now, we'll be like, ah, that was the top. Those were the good old days. And it's just been hell ever since. Or we might look back at this and in three months be like, yeah, it was whatever. It's a blip on the radar. Cause I love seeing these headlines where they're like stock market had its worst day since June. Like, Ooh, June, <laughs> three months ago. Oh my goodness. I just made that up. But I saw some sort of headline like that. It was like comparing some recent, don't worry about this stuff, guys. Just um, just keep going. Don't, don't change your investing style on whether you think a recession is coming or not coming. Pick a plan in the good times. I would say right now is the good time. Pick a plan, have an investing strategy, automate it, And stick to that plan through thick and thin. The worst time to change a plan is when the shit's hitting the fan, right? So pick a plan now, stick to it. Don't worry about the next recession. Okay, enough on that. Okay, next question. Ooh, this is a good one. What does your truck get for gas mileage with and without your camper in tow? Okay, so I've got a 2020 Tacoma, Toyota Tacoma, and it's just the straight V6. This is not the... Uh, TRD package. And I think I'm like the only person on the planet that didn't buy the TRD. And I asked around, I'm like, come on, guys, be real with me. How often are you using that locking differential? I've talked to like one person that ever uses it. So I was just like, is it really worth it? It's a four-wheel drive. It's all that stuff. But I did not go with the TRD because I didn't need the fancy interior, did not care about that at all. And the only thing I remotely cared about was the locking differential. And there's like one crag around here would probably be good to have, but I can also walk it in like 30 minutes. So it's totally fine. Anyway, uh, stock, I think on the highway, I'd get kind of low 20s, maybe 23, 24 miles per gallon. Then I put a big old heavy snug top topper on it. That lowered it down to maybe 21 on the highway, 22, kind of depends on uphill, downhill, whatever. But man, when I'm towing, it definitely drops to like 13 to 15. Um if it was sustained downhill, I might get up to 17, but it's kind of in that 13 to 15 range. And I've got an A-frame camper. Uh, God, I don't know what it weighs. Maybe like 2,000, I want to say, empty, 2,000. But when I go, you know, I'm carrying a bunch of water, a bunch of supplies, have no problem getting it anywhere, but it does lower my gas mileage. So, um, yeah. So short answer is about 22 highway empty, and then about 13 to 15 with the camper. Hope that helps. Okay, guys, I think that'll do it for this week. We're getting a little long in the tooth here. We're like at an hour 
according to mine. This will trim this up a little bit in some editing, but that's enough of me talking alone. Uh, guys, anytime you want to get in touch, you can head on over to the contact page on the website. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, that's probably the best place to get in touch with me via email. Don't hesitate to ask questions anytime. Again, I want to reiterate, I am not a financial advisor. I am not a financial guru. Most of this stuff I didn't come up with. Actually, I'd probably say almost anything I did not come up with. Brilliant minds before me kind of laid the path, and I'm just here to kind of help spread the message. I just want to help get the stuff out because it's changed my life. It's changed my wife's life, and I think it can change your life. So uh, without that, I, you know, that, that, that's all I got this week, guys. I'm just rambling now. So yeah, let's cut it there. Guys, I love you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.